0: back to off the fence in 2020 i'm james fox i'm alex maskell we're back it's been a little while we've had a period of reflection we have i'm calling it that as everyone seems to be using those terms
1: yeah it's it we were (laughs) we were we were sad and you can't podcast when you're sad it's not allowed
0: yeah i think that's the rules we'll we'll go with that
1: yeah we looked it up with the podcast council we don't know how the brave troops and all of the other podcasts for sure you listen to did it but they were in contravention of the rules and will be punished
0: Some things have happened since we last put an episode out. There's not been loads that happened. Okay, but there was the general election. We've not actually put out an episode since the general election. In fairness, (laughs) we did try. Let's just explain that for a moment. So we did record an episode about the election results, analysis,
1: why Labour lost. Yeah, it was full of incredibly uh, heady, insightful sort of uh, reflections. Real real things that the movement desperately needed to hear as
0: soon as possible. And then it turns out, as I discovered today, I actually forgot to upload it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I assumed, okay, for those of you who listen regularly, there have throughout the run been a number of dead episodes where we just felt this wasn't a strong enough episode. What was happening wasn't interesting enough. We didn't have enough interesting insights, and so I just assumed it was one of those. And it was actually no. We have we have we have nothing to say about the election. Nothing worth <laughs> listening to. And I was just like, oh, okay, that's fair. I I, I have no reason to believe that wouldn't be the case. Uh, but no, it turns out he just forgot because Fox, you're a busy lad.
0: There, there's a lot going on, and c- it's Christmas. You know, we we're all a bit distraught from the election result. You started
1: result. a very demanding new job.
0: Yeah, it's been a wild one. So, we're back anyway, and um, we're actually going to talk about a few things tonight. I'll get on to what those are in a minute, but we'll bookend this episode with a bit of the kind of election analysis why Labour lost. To be honest, it's quite relevant because we're going to be talking about the Labour leadership contest tonight, a new leader being selected for the Labour Party, and there's still a lot of discourse around that around who they're going to choose or not choose and why, and why Labour lost obviously plays into that. And there's still a lot of discourse that's Kind of not backed up by any evidence, and I'm sure some of that will be underlined later on when we when we play that out at the end you of the episode.
1: You know, we like to talk about the discourse.
0: Yes. First things first. If you're new to the podcast, we're on Out of the Fence Talk. You can follow us on Twitter on there. You can tweet us, and uh, we're on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com/slash/Off the Fence. Follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever. Blah 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 blah. Um, Sinn Fein just done really well in the Irish. General election yeah, happened this weekend.
1: Yeah, by by all accounts, with uh, with the current with the current uh, counts re- uh, reporting, they appear to have come first in the popular vote.
0: And for those who don't know who Sinn Fein are, um, you know, the kind of history of Anglo-Irish relations. They're a political party in the Republic of Ireland and in the North Northern uh, Northern Ireland, um, and their kind of their whole raison d'etre is, I guess, for a United Ireland at the end of the day. Um, but they're kind of normally a left-wing party in a general sense. Um, there's others that maybe uh, you know, have reasons to dispute that. But as, ge- as things generally trend... They're certainly the left-most major party, yeah.
1: especially considering that the Irish Labour Party has really kind of tacked to the centre. Yeah.
0: So they've done really well. They polled top of this general election, I think with 24 percentage points. Yeah. Their leader, um, Mary Lou Macdonald, um, would have been the Irish tea shop Uh, which is obviously the the leader, the head of state, head of government, if it were not for the fact that Sinn Féin (laughs) didn't expect to do this well and didn't put up enough candidates? Because historically, they
1: don't do well because of some naughty things they may or may not have been associated with in the past. What would they be? Uh, Well, they would be that ostensibly, as a sort of political wing of Irish republicanism, uh, the... The allegations have always been that they are a political movement heavily associated with the Irish Republican Army, which was uh, the main sort of Republican militia during the Troubles.
0: And as many people in this country may see them, a terrorist group. Yes. Um. So. Because, that-
1: frankly, like aside from anything else, people have an insanely simplistic view of like what a terrorist group is, where, frankly, they're usually... Uh, Like militia movements that have paramilitary groups that have political wings It's in the same way that people say Hezbollah is a terrorist group Well, Hezbollah is an entire political apparatus uh, with a paramilitary group that does partake in terroristic activities But which also has like a political wing This sort of incredibly reductive thing which largely comes from the fact that the um Like the war on terror and like as it's currently constituted was based around Al-Qaeda which is a relatively straightforwardly it's mostly just a militia and that militia is mostly just the paramilitary that does the terrorist activities where with a lot of other things it's just not like that or that simple. And
0: the, the Irish general election has just happened. Why is it important to people in Britain? Well, obviously, we share a land border with the country. It's a very close country. Just there's a long history of Anglo-Irish relations, for those who don't know that. I'm sure people listening will be at least half aware of that. But in a very, very contemporaneous sense, the Irish and British relations in just the simple terms of Brexit have been something that has dominated headlines over the past two to three years. And... Certainly, just the basic concept of seeing a Sinn Féin Taoiseach negotiating with Boris Johnson for trade agreements, it would be it would be amusing. It would be extremely
1: funny if we didn't live here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, it seems like the, uh, Sinn Féin are going to have to form some sort of coalition, either with the main parties or with the alternative parties. Yeah, and it's,
1: it's worth mentioning, uh, both of the two major parties, they have both sworn that they will never... Enter into coalition with Fein. yeah, and the monkey's poor finger curled towards its palm as they said that. But yeah, so they're going to have to really do a gut check on that. Principle. Certainly, the,
0: if the, if no government can be formed, another situation might end up being a general election again. Um, with a couple more with Shinfein uh, putting up <presumably>.
1: Considering that they know Whether that,
0: that would bring out the same result in terms of vote share would remain to be seen. We'd would, yeah. would find that out. But certainly very interesting. And, you know, uh, keep an eye on that one if you haven't been following it. Let's move on, though. Before we talk about a Labour leadership Contest, we've got to wave goodbye to part of our favourite content. We've got to wave goodbye to Change UK. We do. Uh, Th- their ship has sailed. They've gone off.
1: I mean, they did, They did. were the, <laughs> they did what they were supposed to do. They were the kamikaze... Uh, that kind of begun the uh, earnest downward trajectory of labor in early 2009
0: I mean Anna Subri she put out that tweet at the end of last year saying it's time to wind things down which bring the party to an end they collectively got ten thousand votes between the what five yep. six candidates that ran in the general election yep.
1: no it's it's they did it they they changed the conversation from labor will take some talking round on Brexit to Labour will not be talked around on Brexit, we need to leave and you need to follow us, which ended up Causing Labour's polling to shrink continuously like up until the moment that they committed to a second referendum They did the kamikaze job they're supposed to but they failed to form a second party They failed to form a new party because none of them had any experience working in a
0: small party and they were That's bad at it That's
1: the answer to this It's in your hands. Oh, God. How much of that soundboard are you going to be able to retire?
0: (laughs) We're going to have to get rid of that one now. It's done. Or maybe it'll carry on. Who knows? Maybe Um,
1: Anna Subaru will continue to be a light in our lives for many years to come.
0: Yeah. Joan Ryan, too. Anyway, now that they're out of the way, uh, in the Labour leadership, there's like another apparently in the news headlines this weekend, there's another MP who uh, was briefing journalists saying there's another 50 MPs that are going to quit the party and do a two change to UK. Um, Furious, Fast and Furious 2.0 whatever version of Change UK. Um, It's kind of like Groundhog Day? Are we doing this all over again? Is this the same threat we've got that you're going to do this for another two years and then, (laughs) you know... Oh, by the way, they're saying they'll do this if Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's kind of like the left candidate, if she's elected leader, they're all going to quit.
1: Because there's nothing these people hate more than the membership of the Labour Party and God knows they don't want to be beholden to Yeah,
0: yeah, well... Anyway, that's one of the candidates, Rebecca Long-Bailey, endorsed by Momentum, Unite the Union. She's the kind of left of the party candidate. Uh, We've also got Lisa Nandy in the running. The candidate representing Towns. Yes. And in some ways, some of the most right policies as well um, within the party spectrum, in some ways anyway.
1: She's very strange. Apparently she's very capable. Like, there are people who, like, i know within labor and like who speak quite highly of her as a politician but the problem isn't towns the problem is old people there are more old people in towns than there are in cities they lost old people they didn't
0: just lose towns and as we'll come on to later in our election analysis the kind of working class discussion it's old people again yeah because it's not working class young people that labor lost it's working class old people yeah and the constant in that situation is working class The one that changes is age yeah (laughs) so you know towns and cities it's you know same thing with age yeah lisa nandy we've also got keir starmer he was the brexit um shadow secretary
1: having a hard time of it right in the middle of the campaign right now because
0: yeah i mean his his mother-in-law has died and for obvious reasons he's suspended part of this campaigning for the next week or so which is understandable um, there will be some televised hustings between all of the candidates, including the last one, Emily Thornberry. Um, she is going to be in the running as well. All four of those candidates will be doing some televised debates. I think the first one of those is on Channel 4 towards the end of this month. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think about a week away today, actually. So that's coming up pretty soon. And we're going to see some of the, the situation of the candidates. People are saying they're not kind of energized by a lot of the candidates or any of them, really. I mean, I was really energised by this contest when I knew that Jess Phillips was going to run. <laughs> She's now quit. But at least when she was yeah. in the running, we were like, we had some entertainment. We're actually seeing someone struggle yeah. to actually talk about policy it turns when out- they're finally forced to.
1: Yeah, it turns out uh, no one outside of the Times likes or wanted Jess Phillips. No. And no one outside of the Times like, gave her what she needed in order to excel, which was an opportunity to stab her colleagues in the back. Outside of that context, when she was forced to have a personality of her own, other than just gleeful vindictiveness,
0: she really floundered. An absolute car crash of a candidacy. It actually ended far sooner than I realised it would, So, or could have predicted. But yeah, she's gone. But generally, yeah, I mean, well, how are you feeling about the four candidates? Because it seems like Keir Starmer is the favourite to win, and the only other one that has a chance is the left candidate, Rebecca Long-Bailey. The other candidates don't really seem to have a look in unless something wildly changes in the next month.
1: None of them are exactly blowing my hair back. uh Rebecca Long Bailey obviously has the policy platform I'm most sympathetic to and she is she is exceeding my expectations as opposed to, uh, as to like how like how i had seen her before which yep. was as someone who struggled in the charisma department i think
0: a lot of people on the left of the party have been saying that they've been saying you know i'm, I'm backing her because she's got the policy platforms and you know i had some concerns regarding you know her approach and kind of her uh, kind of personality and how she'll handle the media and things like that but she's actually done better a lot better than she thought i watched her launch watched her handle the q a with the kind of westminster journalists she seemed pretty competent. Um, she had an hour-long discussion on Navarra Media. People were saying she did pretty well for an hour of that sort of grilling. Um, did did pretty well. Like you say, I think she's kind of exceeding expectations in those regards. Whether or not it matters all the way that she'll actually be able to win, who knows? Um, yeah, I
1: don't. I don't know what her. It's tricky because in order to like put someone as the leader of the Labour Party, you have to like. I don't know if there is enough of a critical mass behind her. Yeah. And whatever you want to say, like Jeremy Corbyn did have more people behind him than she does right now, because you know, in a lot of ways, the bench is looking a bit thin. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be. You want to hope that like the next time around, maybe a slightly better like party operator than Jeremy Corbyn will be able to navigate the sort of. Endless backstabbing coming from the mm. Labour right. Uh, I mean fingers crossed, right? I
0: mean the guy who's leading the pack at the moment Keir Starmer One of the three reasons why he is put forward as the best candidate is that what I call the Joe Biden argument <laughs> Which we'll come on to later why that's complete bullshit, but that he's essentially the most electable Yeah, elect- and, and, and we have to break this down. What, what what does this mean when you say Keir Starmer is is the most electable and people might answer that and go oh well it means he's the most likely to be able to beat the tories and get into government and he's the most electable politician okay well why yeah. is he the most electable Give me some give me some characteristics you know what's he good at what's he bad at what's the things that's driving that electability and more often than not people can't really answer that they're like hmm Well, Well, because the answer is he's good at speaking, and he's uh, he wears a suit. He's
1: not that great at speaking. (laughs) Yeah, he's really not.
0: He's actually quite boring to listen to. Yeah,
1: he's like, I mean, I'm sure he can be polished to be better.
0: Is it? Is it because he's a white man in a suit with a good
1: haircut? He's an authoritative-looking old, like older white guy. Yeah, and it's
0: not just because he's photogenic. It's not just because he's white. It's not just because of this characteristic or that he's got a good haircut, but. I I I get the impression combined all those things people have this kind of view of what a Prime Minister should look like. Yeah,
1: he's what a serious uh, politician is supposed to look like and (laughs) that is obviously something that on the left we should be looking to challenge and deconstruct but for whatever it's worth, a lot of people are still suckers for looking at at someone on the TV and going, yes, there is someone who looks Prime Ministerial.
0: Yeah. Um, So, I mean, it looks like if he wins, it's going to be a move in a different direction for the party anyway. Certainly, he's tried to bill himself as the unifying candidate that's going to bring the left of the party and the right of the party together.
1: Obviously, I don't, we will never know whether or not he actually is naive enough to mean that, yeah. but that's an insane proposition.
0: He's Essentially, he's a soft left candidate, right, from this kind of middle of the party like Lisa and Andy, but with no doubt, the right of the party see him as their candidate. Yeah, like and- There's no doubt about that. He's brought in lots of progress... Uh, people behind him he's brought in lots Lots of of labor first people which is really troubling because people that are literally out there to destroy the left of the party like that's not our words they tweet these things yeah Uh, you know these sorts of people uh you know his advisors uh matthew pound being one of them the right see him as their candidate and then the left are sitting here like well actually you know he's saying all these good policies he's not really come under any scrutiny for any policies yet he's not for open selection he's not for this or that Not really had much from him so far in terms of like what policies are you going to do? People don't really know what Keir Starmer's going to do with the Labour Party. And his,
1: his latest thing is he's, he's doing this big pay on to Labour councils, which is a big Labour first thing because a lot of people on Labour councils are entrenched Labour first people. But a lot of Labour councils fucking suck. They're just like openly sort of venal, uh, like deeply just f- deeply factional. Uh, just entrenched and completely unaccountable. And they're the reason for a lot of the sort of ill will that has been fostered towards the Labour Party in a lot of traditional Labour Party areas. His pitch is so obviously to all the members of the Labour Party apparatus who are hostile to Corbyn yeah. before it is to the members. And he's just hoping that the membership, I think, is just worn down enough that they will go... Oh, fine. We'll, we'll go for the guy who looks like what a prime minister is supposed to look like and hope he's as left-wing as he intimates he is.
0: Hmm. That contest will continue. The voting doesn't actually happen for at least another month, I think. Sort of late March, early April. But let's talk about the other side of the Atlantic, right? A little bit more inspiring and hopeful. The Democratic primary to choose the candidate uh, for the Democratic nomination for American president that will go up against Trump later in the year through to the end in november and try and defeat him and at the moment this contest that's been going about a year bernie sanders is doing really well
1: he seems to be the front runner
0: yeah he's pushed himself into that and he he kind of was the front runner because before he was the front runner right because joe biden has been the front runner for a year or so he's been at the top of the polls for about a year but Quite his, commandingly yeah, for a loss of it, but his support has been so soft throughout that. Yeah, that it, was a, it, it was
1: a mile it, wide and an inch deep. Yeah,
0: and then and then suddenly, as the kind of contest actually began in earnest, it collapsed like a, a train hitting a brick wall. He's kind of falling away, and it could be the case that within the next two to three weeks, he could drop out. You know, he's he's got wealthy donors are going a bit mad. Um, My understanding is his his campaign is largely out of money. Yeah. And the billionaires seem to be moving to a different candidate who seems to be taking the moderate lane,
1: and who is extremely happy to uh, take their money, take money from billionaires. Apparently,
0: Pete Buttigieg. Yes,
1: yes, I fucking hate this guy. Like, I was just kind of passively disgusted with him previously, but now that he's like actively beginning to gain some ground, like I'm now like, oh, this guy is like. Genuinely terrible and needs to be destroyed.
0: What's interesting is that everyone else in the kind of democratic field of candidates seem to all, all be fucking annoyed at him as well. Like yeah. they all can see how like he's the fakest guy in America. They all hate him because he's. he's Not just the people that are politically opposed to him, but essentially, you know, the debate on Friday night they had in New Hampshire.
1: Biden and Klobuchar yeah, have exactly. won back some real yeah. goodwill <laughs> for how nakedly they hate this little weasel. We should probably give a bio. This guy is a, he's the kid of some, uh, some longtime academics, including one of the leading scholars on Antonio Gramsci. His dad is like a serious Marxist theorist. He, he grew up around Notre Dame College. He claims to be from uh, Indiana, from some like rural uh, middle of America heartland thing. But no, he grew up on a college campus. He's like an Ivy League elite from birth. Uh, Anyway, he went to a range of private schools, then to Harvard, then directly into uh, McKinsey Consulting, which is a business consultancy firm that one article uh, in The Atlantic this week laid out the decent case is responsible for basically destroying the middle class in America. Like, they're the weaseliest, most amoral, uh, like, business consulting firm, like, in the world. And their thing is that they hired the most elite people out of Harvard, like, Harvard Business, Harvard Law, stuff like that. And so um, having having done all that and possibly also having been a CIA agent, this is the thing that comes up, uh, he then got elected as the mayor of his small college town in which he was apparently a mediocre mayor who is infamous for having a very contentious relationship to the uh, city's black population. Uh, then he stopped being the mayor. I think he went for a statewide race and ate shit And now he's running for president, basically entirely on the grounds that he is the goodest good boy. And Hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot. And the best way I can put it is, if we accept the framing that Bernie Sanders represents something called populism, if he is the populist democratic candidate, then Pete Buttigieg is the elitist democratic candidate. If you believe that politics is a matter of finding the smartest good boy with the most gold stars from various elite institutions and going, oh, these elite institutions which we can definitely trust say that he's the best one, so we should let him rule us. And then you kind of sit back and let this sort of uh, Ubermensch rule over us. Uh, Mayor Pete is the guy who was basically formed in a lab to do that. And it's kind of the more I look at this guy... Are you th- trying
0: to say that he's a lab rat?
1: <laughs> Quite yes. That is exactly what I am saying. Uh, he's He is this sort of freakishly artificial concept. Like he is so obviously uh, imitating Obama's yeah. cadence and he's so amorphous on what he believes in and the policies that he has are so unrooted in any sort of guiding principle. Like he...
0: You could like understandably believe that he was like just a kind of really mediocre actor, like playing a candidate for dem- democratic primary. Yeah, like- absolutely.
1: <laughs> And more crucially, if you buy into his very slick marketing, you could believe he is whatever kind of politician you want Uh, him to be.
0: That's because he spends a lot of time speaking on any subject for minutes
1: without saying anything.
0: He's incredibly vague
1: in everything he says. He speaks entirely in sort of like stirring platitudes.
0: Is is he the, uh, what's the word? The, uh, what's it like, horoscope or the. You see yourself in whatever, you can see whatever in it, you. Know. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like the, <laughs> the fortune teller. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it, it's like he has a, a speechwriting writing staff full of just uh, people who weren't quite good enough for the West Wing. Yeah. He's doing quite well. As uh, Sanders has uh, dropped, as, uh, as Biden has dropped in the polls, Buttigieg appears to be kind of taking his place. Now, Buttigieg has some major problems, which is the young hate him. Black people don't trust Mayor Pete. Uh, Like, they don't trust him at at all. And if you look at his record in South Bend, justifiably so. There was this... uh, They're they're going for New Hampshire primaries at the moment. And at the um, hustings for New Hampshire, he was asked about his record of, among other things, having been seen to have forced out the first black police chief of South Bend under false pretenses claiming that he was under an external investigation, which he wasn't. Uh, basically, because this guy was recording colleagues of his uh, who were making, like, incredibly racist comments about him. You know, borderline white supremacist. And basically, Mayor Peters alleged to have hushed this up Fired this guy, this black police chief. He was asked about this, and he just went into this completely unrelated talk about systemic racism, systemic racism. Uh, he was asked about why why arrests of black people in South Bend skyrocketed during his time in office and he taught, spoke a bunch of platitudes about systemic racism clearly a term he has learned yeah. uh, and just didn't answer the question at all and then when he was pushed for it further he just kind of went uh, we, we arrested more black people because we were going after gangs and drug dealers and it's like okay you're literally just describing furthering systemic racism just demonstrating that he has no understanding what these terms actually mean or the part that he and sort of these pissant technocratic centrists play into these problems. So what's I-
0: interesting about him I think is he, at the moment in terms of the race is that he's not just being attacked by the left candidates who are running in a different lane to him. He's being taxed by the fellow moderate candidates that are all coming out for him. So we had the debate where Amy Klobuchar, who's senator from Minnesota went after him and you know called him out. We had the next day an ad that Joe Biden put out that was essentially uh, calling him out pretty brutally. Yeah, just pointing out that he's just <clears throat> this small time mayor. Because they what it's they fundamentally
1: a- get is he is a fraud.
0: Yeah, and it's been a bunch of moments where he he's risen in the polls after he kind of tied, or maybe pretended he won in Iowa, the caucus that happened uh, yeah. last week. The, the, the first, first primary,
1: at the time of recording this, Still isn't resolved, yeah. and it's looking like it might never be satisfactorily resolved.
0: Yeah, and, and you know the situation from that essentially was kind of Bernie Sanders won, Pete Buttigieg won, or they kind of tied. It was it was quite ambiguous from the situation. People can read it however they wanted to, but essentially, but uh, Pete Buttigieg certainly tried to get a good gain out of it, and he's gotten some gains in the polls from it by making out that he won. And then
1: a the thing I've heard from a lot of people canvassing in New Hampshire, and this is just. Uh, this is just anecdotal, but the thing I've heard is apparently a lot of regular people do just take it as a given that he did win because he said he won. The yeah. news network said he declared victory, so he must have won.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly depressing. Um, but anyway, you know, he's had a good boost, and then the past few days in the run up to this vote, He's taken a few hits with the Joe Biden ad, with the debate. And then I think yesterday or last night, there was this kind of meal or kind of speech where each candidate has a speech to this big audience with all the supporters for every candidate are in the audience. And people started chanting Wall Street Pete, Wall Street Pete. And he's like having to shout into the microphone over them. And it's a real awkward moment that it was like, apparently like Gabbard supporters and Bernie supporters and you know a bunch of people were shouting Wall Street Pete. And there's all these hashtags now about Pete Buttigieg that have started appearing. And we've got Wall Street Pete as being one of them. We had Mayo Mayo Pete, Mayonnaise yeah. Pete, or Ma- Mayo Cheats. Pete the Cheat with the billionaires thing. After all the billionaires started circling around Pete Buttigieg, 40 billionaires Pete. We had some great clips of Bernie Sanders calling him out. You know, we've, we've had a bit of this.
2: The billionaires are actually getting very emotional. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it, it seems like he's becoming the billionaire establishment candidate and he's probably going to comfortably take that lane at least for the next few primaries. Whether or not he can actually do any good in the national polls remains to be seen, but this all could collapse and become Bernie Sanders' race uh, ex- extremely easily within the next few weeks it
1: could so uh, South Carolina is going to be really difficult for him because that's kind of where Biden has been looking for an opportunity to justify himself and uh, South Carolina it's in the South it has uh, the Democratic base there is very black and black people don't trust Pete Buttigieg so like black voters don't trust uh, Pete Buttigieg and that's really, really going to be a problem for him there and it's potentially going to prop up uh, Joe Biden more
0: We have this moment from the debate that I think encapsulates how strong Bernie is at the moment in terms of calling people to judge out Bernie's kind of really been the candidate who doesn't go after other candidates too much, he waits for them to attack him and then defends really strongly and is really good at doing that this is one of the first times I've seen him like just off the bat, just completely destroy someone and not only do that, but then bring it back to his campaign and just do the whole kind of 40 seconds of just absolutely destroying Pete Buttigieg and bringing it back to his campaign and building something, you know, constructive. This is this really impressed me, this clip anyway.
2: Our campaign and I'm enormously proud of this. Unlike some of the folks up here, I don't have 40 billionaires Pete contributing to my campaign. (laughs) Coming from the pharmaceutical industry, coming from Wall Street and all the big money interests. What we do have is we have now over 6 million contributions from 1.5 million people averaging $18.50 a contribution. That is unprecedented in the history of American politics. If we want to change America, you're not gonna do it by electing candidates who are going out to rich people's homes begging for money. The way we're going to do it is build a mass movement of working people who are prepared to stand up, not take money from these billionaires, not take money from Wall Street, but stand up to the drug companies on Wall Street. And if you want to be part of that political revolution, BernieSanders.com.
0: <laughs> that, that whole clip just, you know, encapsulates like a minute of just absolutely bodying him. And then br- the final thing he says, Bernie, you Sa- get the link in and everything.
1: Yeah. Bernie Sanders is a, aside from anything else, A really good politician, and that can't be understated. There is like a skill set here, like being better at the skills in that skill set does make you a better politician. And he is a really, really good politician.
0: It's very exciting, anyway. The New Hampshire primary is going to be coming up this Tuesday, February 11th, and I'm sure we'll do some discussions and chat off the back of that. It could, we could see finally some candidates drop out, because we didn't have any candidates drop out after Iowa, which I found a bit surprising, maybe because of the ambiguity of the race and the kind of complete cock-up. Yeah,
1: the lack of a real resolution did give a lot of people a lot of cover to stick around and basically go... Well, no one really knows what happened. But, in but Iowa. even
0: like Michael Bennett from Colorado, like he's polling zero percent in every state and nationally. Yeah. Like he's just not. Like, why are you in the race still? Like, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: why is Andrew Yang still there? But
0: at least he's getting like two, three percent, and that's nothing. That's I think still he got, something.
1: He got one percent in Iowa. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, this has been off the fence. You'll hear some uh, election analysis in a minute.
1: This was all pre-recorded a month ago. You should have heard this a
0: while ago. (laughs) More than a month ago. It's been a
1: long time since we've recorded one of these. Anyway. Sorry if we were rusty.
0: (laughs) So on to the actual key discussion. Why did Labour support fall away? Oh, Alex, you know why. It's because the Labour Party are just too far left now. Yeah, it's, it's... people... MAD POLICIES! NATIONALIZATION!
1: Yeah, it's not just Corbyn or Brexit. It's it's the entire project of being
0: left-wing at all. That's they, it, yeah. They don't
1: like it. The only thing anyone actually likes is
0: Tony Blair. We all like Tony Blair, don't we? Who? How could you not? Interestingly, Tony Blair's been in the news saying, you know, Labour should have just accepted the referendum result for the last three years. It's <gasps> literally the fucking guy who's been like, pushing the party towards a more Remain position saying constantly we shouldn't be accepting the referendum result and now he trots his little fucking legs out and says no we should have actually accepted the result.
1: Yeah also just in general this is a guy who spent like the week before the election briefing the press on why they like why Labour was completely unacceptable and now he's fucking crying crocodile tears at the result. He can like. Why does no one? Why does? Why do people treat this guy like he's like a serious analyst and not someone who's actively trying to move the needle himself?
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that um, Tony Blair has been saying is, you know, it's the far left and control of the party. You know, these crazy, you know, promises, and we can talk about that. But again, the reason why we kind of sarcastically brought up nationalisation and the party being too left-wing is because. If you've heard similar takes this week from people you might know or people you've seen online saying, you know, it's just the, you know, crazy policies, it's just too left wing. Try asking yeah. them, what policies are too left wing? You know, and say, you know, what policies do you think are too left wing? And then you'll get an answer. A lot of the time they can't actually uh, give you an answer, but maybe they'll give you an answer and they'll say, "Oh, it's the nationalization or all those sorts of things." Well, if that's true, let's have a look at the reasons why People decided to go from voting Labour last time to not voting Labour this time. We've got some polling on it out from opinion. We don't have to discuss this about what we both... There's no matter of opinion on this. We can look at the data. So, from all the people that were defectors from the Labour Party, i.e. voted Labour in 2017 and decided not to now, what has changed in the last two years for these people? Well, the number one reason we've got here for total Labour defectors is 37% saying the leadership of the party. But
1: that's weird. The leadership of the party didn't change in the last two years.
0: It's funny that. So they voted Labour in 2017 and and were potentially fine or able to uh, any misgivings they had about the leadership, they voted Labour. But this time, even though it's the same leadership, they're not. We'll come back to that. 21% said their stance on Brexit. So remain or leave you weren't happy with the Labour Party's position on on Brexit. You weren't happy with the second referendum that was on offer, uh, blah, 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 blah. So, so far, we've got 37% leadership, 21% their stance on Brexit. And then we've got a third category, their economic policies, i.e., this is where you'd be seeing a massive spike in people saying, oh, it's too left wing.
1: You would think. Guess the figure? Uh... I'm going to say, presumably, 37%.
0: Oh, higher, you know. No, it's 9%. So we've got 37% saying the leadership, 21% saying their stance on Brexit, and, sorry, I said 9 I meant 6% for the the economic policies. I was just
1: about to say, where on earth were you getting...
0: (laughs) It's 6% of people that decided to not vote Labour after previously voting Labour that they they thought was the economic policies. You know, that's the change in the past two years, that, that drop in 8%. It's not from the policies or the fact that it was too left-wing. That's not it. And we look at, we have if we actually go to people that defected from Labour to Conservative, you might think, oh, well, they're the people that think it's too left-wing.
1: Of course, they're, they're going to be the ones saying, no, 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 we need sensible economic
0: Yeah, so it's even more pronounced on there. Again, 6% say it's only because of their economic policies, but 31% say their stance on Brexit, and 45% say the leadership. So we can talk about why Labour lost their vote share, but it certainly wasn't because of the policies. We want If we want to talk about the policies, let's look. Still massive favourability rating for nationalising rail, bringing Royal Mail back into public ownership, public ownership of water, all these sorts of things wildly popular we've even seen uh, bus companies having a plurality of voters in favor
1: it's worth mentioning of course they've also become more popular over jeremy corbyn's uh, leadership now that they've entered back into public consciousness
0: people like the idea more now this coming to us from a poll from yougov which says the support for the continued privatization of Royal Mail has tanked by 7 percentage points with 69% now wanting public ownership and just 18 supporting continued, privat- continued privatization uh, the public is also now 9 points more supportive of the public ownership of bus companies with 55 in favor and 31 against Voters last week were 6 percentage points more likely to support railway nationalisation than they were at the 2017 election. 64% in favour, 23% opposed. Support for water companies renationalisation also increased by the same amount with 63% now in favour and 23% opposed. And all these policies that are popular, they're not only popular with Labour voters, Lib Dem voters. You poll Tory voters on these policies. They're in favour of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that support for... Uh, yeah That support for water companies, 63%. 63% of the population, unfortunately, did not vote Labour yeah. last week. Yeah. So pretty clearly it has appeal beyond just the limits of the Labour Party. And certainly uh, appeal beyond the limits of the radical hard left, the Corbynistas of the Labour Party. Sure. Uh, they, they, they call that ideology... Uh, You know, Corbynism and uh, its adherents, Corbynistas, because Jeremy Corbyn invented being
0: left-wing in about 2015. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the people are saying, oh, the Labour Party's too left-wing, we've got to go back to the centre ground, the sensible politics, you know. A lot of those people um, are saying that alongside, you know, the fact that, people didn't vote for the Labour Party because it's too left-wing, even though there's no evidence to support that possible, as we've just outlined. There's
1: there's also no evidence to suggest that the centre has any answers to the sort of damaging uh, trajectories that the Labour vote has been on, really consistently since since 1997. Yeah. Like, consistently, all of the sort of things that came to fruition last week... Have been in the pipeline pretty constantly uh, ever since Blair's first term, and we've never seen any indication from the centre that they actually have meaningful answers for this.
2: Yeah,
0: it's a good point. Actually, you know, if centre ground politics is what the country is, is you know, just burning for, you know, and for a Labour Party to come back to the centre, you'd presumably see. And um, as it's been talked about over the last few years, the need for a new centrist party, or maybe the centrist party that already exists, the Lib Dems. Maybe you see them flying high. How was their election? Well, they lost seats. net. Nah. They gained three, but lost four. And not only did they lose net seats, they lost the seat of their fucking leader, Joe Swenson who started the campaign by saying she could become prime minister.
1: The leader whose fault it was that there was the election at this point in the first place because they decided, uh, along with the SNP, that now was the time to push for it.
0: (laughs) There was so much hubris coming from that party. They seemed to think that they were really connecting with the movement over the past sort of eight months, I think.
1: They had been a couple of months prior, but that had all dissipated. But, But
0: a lot of it was, you know defections across the summer from Tory remainers and Labour remainers this sort of thing like no one gives a fuck about defections the average voter doesn't care that you gained eight eight Tories you know into their party um yeah sure the eight Tories but like the fact is that all those MPs gained their majorities on off the back of the Conservative and Labour parties and lo and behold not a single centrist defector retained their seats change UK decimated. All those new-lived MMPs that came from the Tories and Labour, decimated. Not a single one gained their seat, all acting as splitter parties. It's just the hubris that they had coming out of the Euros, and I think the, the, that hubris was you know, encapsulated, not in the fact that she thought she could become Prime Minister, but directly in that policy of saying, we're going to revoke Article 50.
1: But Fox, the electorate during the European elections is so predictive of the, <laughs> uh, the voter turnout of generals. That's why we saw the Brexit party win.
0: This is the thing, you know, the Euro election that we saw in, in May was touted by the Lib Dems as you know, we beat the Labour party and the Conservatives. Yeah, but who didn't you beat, Joe Swinson? The Brexit party. If we're going to use the European elections as a barometer of, you know, being very important and where the country should go uh, in terms of leadership, the fact that you were beaten by, you know, the people who are trying to force Brexit through as hard as possible. Like, maybe you haven't thought that through, Joe Swinson?
1: Also, just in general, if the European elections were so predictive of the genuine current of, uh, like, British politics at the time, UKIP would have been running the country for about 10 years. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Exactly. Let's talk a bit more about, let's get back onto the core discussion about Labour losing their vote share. A lot of talk about class recently and it's similar to uh, the last election where suddenly everyone's talking about class and age and how the two are intersecting and affecting voting intention. Or at least some people are talking about them individually and not together enough. Um, There's a lot of vox popping and there's been a lot of media discussion around how Labour are losing the working class, you know. Just, you know, that kind of headline or stub or you know that peg labor losing the working class let's break that down a little bit why are there problems with saying that
1: uh i mean a bunch of them uh for a start almost everyone who says it is a prick (laughs) just personally so you've got to be suspicious of basically everything they say
0: it ignores a lot first of all a lot of these people, when they're saying working class, how are they w- what are they defining as working class? Well, usually they're measuring class with a scheme called the NRS social grades. We've talked before on this podcast about why those NRS social grades are complete shit. They are taken from the advertising world of the 50s, designed to s- sell magazines um, to, you know, general families in in suburb in suburbia they've been pointed out by abby wilkinson in a piece of bella caledonia that we've uh, cited before and recently by ash Sharkar in this guardian piece why they are not a very useful they're not a modern way of measuring class whatsoever they're completely disconnected from the modern world of work and wealth um this from that piece in the guardian from ash Sharkar, one in six baby boomers in the uk owns a second home And a whopping one in five is a millionaire. One in five, baby boomers, is a millionaire. That's up from just 7% in 2006 to now 20%, one in five. Those who are able to capitalise on access to credit and the low cost of housing in in decades past... Just
1: anyone who could buy a house in London in the 70s.
0: Yeah, those who are able to capitalise on access to credit and the low cost of housing in decades past have been able to benefit from and indeed exacerbate the same overheated housing market which has locked out young people. It's possible then for a pensioner who lives off wealth to be classed as C2DE that's the lower end of the scale, that's described as working class, while a debt-laden millennial, just about surviving on low wages, in this system, gets classed as ABC1, middle class. Yeah. It's completely- like
1: if, if, like, live, if they work in a call center, they're yeah. being classed as- Middle class. Higher than literally
0: any pensioner. Yeah, <laughs> You've got a, it's just a, a broken way of measuring class. So first of all, we're measuring it in the wrong in, in the wrong way. And then when we're talking about class, as we kind of just indicated, um, it seems to be that we only ever talk about older people, you know, maybe people with regional accents, older baby boomers in the north. We're we're never talking about, first of all, uh, you know, BAME people, uh, black and Asian minority ethnic people, maybe working class. You know, Hackney is a working class constituency. You might be talking about gentrification in these various places, but... There's places in London that are definitely working class communities, but they're just not white. And then we've got the idea that working class is is just the people that, you know, worked in the pits um, several decades ago. Therefore, like you said to me before we started the the podcast, yeah, you're working class only if you're working class in 1984. There is no working class in the 90s and noughties now and into this decade. In
1: the modern era, like if you work as a temp in like minimum wage admin jobs... You're still working in an office, so that basically
0: makes you the same as any given banker. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, this idea that, you know, Labour have a problem with working class voters, it's not the case. They have a problem with older working class voters and actually much more specifically, when you look at the data, Labour problem don't have a problem with older working class voters, they have a problem with older voters. Just in the same way, the Conservatives have a massive problem with younger voters, except it's less electorally um, consequential for the Tories because younger people don't turn out to vote as much as older people always seem to. So, you know, young working class people are flocking to the Labour Party when they are voting, or if they're not, it's, it's apathy. And they're certainly, what they're not doing is voting Tory. James Medway, The Economist, described this the younger you are in Britain today, the more likely you are to be working class by any useful definition. Lower and falling wages, insecure work, and no assets owned. The analysis that Ash Sarkar referenced in that Guardian opinion piece earlier actually comes from the asset management company um, Net Wealth. And there's some more statistics for that I think are relevant here. The wealth of the youngest group, aged 25 to 34, bang in the middle of millennials there. The wealth of that youngest group remained just above sixty thousand pounds, and that's compared to one in five baby boomers being a millionaire, right? Yeah. That, I mean, if that doesn't it, if that doesn't display the wealth inequality, I don't know what does. And that's the problem with also measuring um, class via income and you know what job you do. It doesn't measure wealth. It doesn't measure the wealth inequality, the proportion of national wealth that that group held, twenty-five to thirty-four year olds fell from five to three percent over recent decades you know (laughs) this is bad folks
1: yeah we don't uh, we don't have anything if you're our age
0: yeah i mean i mean that's not actually recent decades it's recent years um so it's 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 bizarre that people are still going with this idea that working class people aren't voting Tory. look at income levels look at those levels look at wealth equality levels people that live off work are voting labor people that live off wealth aren't they're voting conservative now i want to hear your thoughts alex on the comeback from some people that go you don't get you don't get class guys you just don't get it it's discussion you're not getting it and that's why you're losing voters in the north that were previously working class staunch labor voters you're not getting you're not getting the idea that class is more than just about economics it's about culture what do you say to that
1: i say in that case you aren't discussing class, you're discussing regional culture because in these communities the like the people of different classes in these communities have much more culturally in common with one another. Than they would with their class equivalents in vastly different regions. Culture is often largely regional. Yeah. Like, it's Which, just an attempt to shift the yeah. conversation.
0: Which working class culture are you talking about? Are you talking about the working class culture of, you know, BAME communities in London? Or are you talking about the working class culture of white people in the north? You know, what is it? Or is it the working class culture of new, new working class people, much younger people, you know, on zero hours contracts and stuff like that? No, no,
1: no, no. You're working class when you just have a Scouse accent. That, uh, that, that, it's all about that's the all, accent, isn't it? That's yeah. all being working class is. Yeah. If you have an accent that gets politely referred to as regional, <laughs> that's when you know that you're working class. That's the only definition.
0: Jesus Christ. So it's also the way that um, people seem to just like bring back to the fact that Le- Jess Phillips is, you know, apparently working class. When you look at her history and, you know, where she's come from in terms of her background, it's definitely not working class. No,
1: Laura, Laura Kunisberg is, in fact... Not an elite because she oh, comes yeah, but- from Scotland. She's got a
0: thick Glaswegian accent as it was yeah. described in the Times interview. No, she, she went she's to- like she's like the pot one of the most posh like Scottish people outside of Michael Gove that you've ever heard. Yeah, rather than
1: going to Oxbridge, she merely went to the most elite Scottish university. <laughs> she's
0: basically wearing a flat cap at all times. Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about why the Labour Party vote share collapsed. We kind of talked about it a little bit so far, but we really need, you know, grabbing the bull of the horns. Yeah, so,
1: like we, we discussed the ways in which it collapsed, but now we're going to get into our theories as to why.
0: Yeah. So the, the main things we've got there were saying people moved away because of the leadership and yeah. also because of the Brexit policy. The vast majority, it was like 6% were saying the manifesto. It's
1: worth mentioning that uh, YouGov polling uh, in back in January... Uh, did seem to find that the reasons people disliked the leadership were predominantly Brexit-based.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a whole host of reasons, Um, mainly around Brexit. It was almost all around Brexit and then a few other issues.
1: Yeah, Brexit general or other. uh, The perception that he was indecisive or not putting through views strongly, which they don't mark as being directly Brexit-related, but But that that, that sounds very Brexity. Uh, that's 14%. Uh, not taking a position or being weak on Brexit was 13%. So those are the top three: so 16, 14, and 13% there. 7% uh, disliking him for not having more of a dialogue with Theresa May or other politicians. Uh, 6% saying that he was to Leave. 3% saying he was to Remain. Uh, you know that's.
0: And, and what's the figure for like uh, manifesto policies? Policies too left-wing.
1: Uh, manifesto policies are policies too left-wing. Six percent. Weird how that number keeps coming up. <laughs> Very
0: small that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's that's almost like it's not actually a huge concern. So but,
0: yeah, especially when the policies are all popular. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, for, off from that, the leadership seemed to be that the idea, you know, specifically Jeremy Corbyn, um, whatever it was. And to be honest, I mean, on the doorstep, it seemed hearing from a lot of people, and uh, a lot of the things that people were saying about Jeremy Corbyn. Seem to be media distortions, lies. You know, we can talk about that. It's 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 in the past now. After yeah. that, whether or not they were true, people thought them.
1: The real thing that any 2019 uh, explanation has to be able to do is also explain what happened in 2017, because yeah. they're obviously wildly contrasting things. And so yeah, definitely. Like so much of what people have been saying just assumes 2017 and the huge period after it, really only stopping in February this year. Uh, where Labour was highly competitive for, uh, like, in polling, most most of the takes you see just doesn't don't take uh, account for that at all. It's almost like it never happened. Yeah, there's
0: been a lot of takes out there that are just like, yeah, 2017 never happened. Yeah. Labour Party under Corbyn never got 40% of the yeah, vote. Yeah, the,
1: the idea that Labour under Corbyn was always inherently unelectable, which just doesn't stand up to uh, yeah. the data that we have. And, 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 those,
0: and those people, are, uh, when you cite that, will probably go. Yeah, but Labour didn't win that election. They still weren't elected. Yeah, but like, e- even
1: then, that still doesn't explain one why they're yeah. who gained went the most out afterwards? of that
0: election. Yeah, who gained the most and who was in the lead after the, in the polls after that election? It was the Labour Party yeah. under Jeremy Corbyn.
1: The more general point is that this time around, the lead because the leadership faced like low approval ratings last time, but I think that the approval ratings, aside from just being simply lower this time spoke to a different kind of disapproval where before the the narrative was Jeremy Corbyn can't win. He's dismissible. He's just, yeah. he kind of wound up there by mistake and he shouldn't be taken seriously. And so when people heard him and quite liked him, they could be won over. And so his his favorables changed quite drastically over the course of the election. Uh, whereas this time, the narrative had switched quite considerably and it was, and really, we kind of have to eat crow here this this was a thing that was kind of first really put out there uh with the change uk split the idea that jeremy corbyn shouldn't be prime minister that he's a bad person who believes things you don't agree with uh won't support the causes that are important to you so on so forth and i think that that was something that the left didn't really pick up on um because you know we saw disapproval ratings being low and we went okay, well, this, the disapproval ratings were low last time. He'll be able to win them over enough with the policies, because the policies were last time. And the difference in kind of what kind of disapproval yeah, it was yeah, yeah. was something we didn't pick up on. And also, frankly, our very shallow bench meant that even if we had realized, oh, Corbyn has become toxic, and I think that needs to be stressed, he became toxic. He was not always toxic. He was not always unelectable. Like, you can look at the figures and see that, like, in consistently high polling, that that clearly isn't the case. In the last, really, like we say, since February, he became toxic. And I think people didn't appreciate the change in kind of opinion that was happening there. Uh, and like, like I say... They also didn't really have someone else on the bench who could take over at the point where, if they had recognised it, they would have been able to do something about it. Like, who would you have subbed in at the point where they subbed in, um like the, where they switched out yeah, Theresa yeah. May for Boris Johnson?
0: And and also on the, on the front of saying, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, the leadership was the key thing that uh, pushed people off from voting Labour. And some other people were saying, well, you know, Brexit was the key issue, and then. Those people are saying, no, it wasn't. you know, ignoring the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was unpopular. As as the two were really wrapped up in together. Yeah, and the, the f-
1: idea that the two are separable is just a, a convenient political so, so
0: anyone telling you that Jeremy Corbyn is the reason why the Labour Party lost the election, I mean, there's, there's truth to that. Oh, anyone also saying that it was actually the brexit reason yeah there anyone? are a lot of
1: people positioning it as really the only reason yeah. as though in isolation from Bre- as, as though well as though the idea can be isolated from brexit
0: there's things about jeremy corbyn that people didn't like that are nothing to do with brexit fine but the, his position within the brexit spectrum that had become more divided since 2017 the you know the the brexit divisions within the country were not so divided in 2017. No, it
1: wasn't nearly as polarised. The Remainers hadn't kind of coalesced around the idea that they would just outright oppose the idea that the referendum was legitimate. Like, that was a, a huge change that just simply wasn't there. kind of... And I'm, I'm generally of the opinion that, like, no matter what the position was, on proximity Brexit. to Brexit was always bad for Labour. Yeah. As we've said a number of times... Uh, about 64 percent of seats went majority leave including 60 percent of labor seats but labor voters went about 70 percent remain yeah it was all it was always the problem that in both cases it was a massively uphill battle for labor and frankly they they had a coalition that would split over brexit which they couldn't afford to lose either part of and that that, that's kind of the other big thing that uh, like lost them it that Brexit was always inherently hostile territory for them and frankly and- I th- I think that uh, whether they picked leave or remain is immaterial although there are a lot of people being like well wouldn't we rather keep our northern heartlands but like if they if they'd stuck with leave and their polling had kept dipping as it was in May and June where they were, like, losing... Like, they were beginning to lose polls outright yeah. to the Liberal Democrats. This
0: is, this is the thing. You and I were very, kind of, uh, not hostile, but we were really not okay with the idea... Of a people's vote, and the first people's vote march in London, when that was happening, we we did a, an episode from that time. You can go back and listen to it. We gave a lot of reasons why the left really didn't want to give in to the demands for a people's vote. There's a lot of people on the left, people like Owen Jones, um, down right down to the activist base, who are saying absolutely not. We should not do a people's vote. You know, look at the 2017 manifesto. We had leaving the single market, leaving the customs union. We had a year out from the referendum. People looked at the Lib Dems offering a second referendum back then and thought it was a bit too wild. And then as things went on and we get the People's Vote Marches happening in London, we were still pretty resistant to it. The Labour leadership were resistant to it. A lot on the left were resistant to it, saying, no, we should should really try and respect the referendum, a soft Brexit or something like that.
1: But also it's worth mentioning, for a long time, a lot of Remainers thought that Labour would eventually transition because yeah. obviously but that's what most of the membership like wanted. That's what most Labour voters wanted. And again, the idea that they could afford to lose leavers was always incorrect. But the idea that they could have afforded to lose Remainers by that's sticking thing. with a leave position is also fictitious. That's the
0: thing. So we we were resistant to the idea of a second referendum all that time. And like I said, lots of other people on the left were. And and look, so, some of those people are now saying that if we ditched a second referendum and carried on with that we'd have a better result and we would have kept the heartlands and like you say you know we could have lost in a completely different way perhaps even more and you see the lib dems doing much higher on the, on 20 percent or something like that so i think like you said there's no there was no good way for the labor party on brexit in terms of just if it's if it's that prominent in the in the election You know, it's it's going to be that much more difficult, and with all the other factors playing in, it's that—that's kind of the reason why Labour lost so many votes. Yeah,
1: it's not the position; it's proximity to Brexit at all. And I think that there's there are a lot of takes I've seen going around suggesting that like there was a choice between losing southern seats or losing northern seats, and that they should have picked one or the other. I don't think that if Labour had stuck to their guns and started to consistently lose to the Liberal Democrats that would have been an ideal environment for them to be keeping the North. I think the idea that you could choose one or the other is not true. Frankly, like, the South is where the media is. The South is where the, you know, opinions of the people there get massively amplified into a part that, you know, generates a lot of people's political ideas rather than just displaying or responding to them. The idea that like you could just exchange one for the other and that we should have done so one way or the other is it's a popular thing i've seen going around and like you know if if it helps absolutely use this line of logic to make remainers feel bad but like it it i i'm completely unconvinced by the idea that a like just sticking with leave would have been a better electoral strategy yeah.
0: Let's talk about the 2019 manifesto as well, because like we said, a lot of the policies yeah. are really popular. Or maybe,
1: maybe the, the campaign in general. Because- yeah,
0: I mean, the, the the manifesto was a little bit less focused, it seemed, this time compared to 2017. Well, like yeah. 2017 was tuition fees, um, you know, renationalisation, boom, boom, boom. It was, you know, the messaging was really clear. Now, it was either the manifesto had too many policies in it that were all, you know, had their own merits and were all achievable, costed, blah, blah, blah. But it's the, kind of like the overload. Yeah. Uh, and just by pure kind of bullet points there's only so many bullet points regardless of how costed they are people can sort of take and maybe some of the messaging on the manifesto this time was just a bit too blurry because there was just kind of quantity
1: yeah there was also like last time the press was extremely insistent on the idea of talking about labor's policies yeah. because they thought <laughs> it would embarrass them yeah. they thought that people would go and go nationalizing the trains not in my England and in fact they ended up amplifying what were quite popular policies yeah but I also think that uh, another major factor is because people didn't like actively disliked Corbyn this time as opposed to just being largely dismissive of him uh, they were less willing to entertain the idea that he should be trusted to do these things. He was The program that they laid out this time around was more ambitious, and people were less willing to trust him. And I think that that was a major factor in why the manifesto didn't go over as well as it could have, because people weren't willing to entertain the idea that this guy they didn't like would be able to help them that much.
0: One policy we probably won't be seeing come back, potentially... The is, second referendum, yeah, that one. <laughs> true, uh, is the broadband for the many one, and we did a whole episode on this about the merits of it and why it was actually a really good policy. But the reason why I say it probably won't come back is I just think communication wise and messaging for that is so difficult because yeah. I spoke to someone recently right who was like, "Yeah, didn't they want to nationalise the internet?" and it was like. Whoa, that's definitely not the policy. Yeah, no. And then they were like, oh they wanted to buy buy BT, right? It's like, well no, actually they wanted to nationalise the open reach infrastructure that BT own at the moment. And, and and it's at that point where it's like it's just too nuanced. And but like even- how do you do the messaging of that policy and make it, you know, Uh, sell itself and it's not a bad policy like if you break it down if you listen to the episode that we did you actually look at it in detail um it you know it it makes sense it hits all the right beats and it shows itself to be you know a policy that's good on multiple fronts but
1: what's also weird about that one is when you explain it more people actually like the policy less that that's a that's a kind of interesting outcome of a lot of the polling that they did over the policies of this, um, I, I it was either uh, Delta Poll or YouGov who did the polling. I'm thinking of that uh, Lefty Stats did I, when the public was polled about their policies and whether or not they approved. The absolute lowest one and the most opposed one, I believe, was uh, the second referendum, which should have been a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> but the second most, op- the second least popular one was the fully explained internet policy people were very intimidated by the idea of nationalizing open reach. I guess people are more comfortable with the idea of nationalization where it, when it's a thing that they deem as being essential or being, I guess, something that has been nationalized before and that they can think of within the context of things Britain nationally owns. But a lot of people seem to be very resistant to it with the
0: internet one specifically. Yeah. This is the type of thing they could have kind of maybe rolled out a year or two into a government. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's leave things there. This has been Off the Fence. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, thank you. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow on SoundCloud. If you're on Android, that might be easier. We've got Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, you can you can subscribe on there. Um yeah, and follow us on Twitter at Off the Fence Talk. We'll be on there. I've been James Fox. I'm Alex Maskell. Cheers.